recent headlines, which all after the last 24 hours seem a little bit like old news. Uh, Dom Shell, Cummings hits back. The revenge of Dominic Cummings, Dom's all-out war with PM. Well, the media lapped it up, but it really wasn't very attractive, was it? There's something rather distasteful about watching someone spout their mouth off. I was right, and everyone else was wrong. I think we'd rather switch off than listen to that. But doesn't it feel just a little bit as if that sort of thing might be happening in our passage? Is the great Apostle Paul having a hissy fit going on and on about himself? Doesn't he appear slightly pompous, if not unbearably self-important? Well, those kinds of questions might actually be helpful as we come to our morning's reading, just to have those kind of questions in our minds, because they prompt us to get under the surface of the words. Why did Paul write these things? What effect did he want to have them to have on the Corinthians? And how can they help us live our lives for Jesus today? Because it's not a rant from a bitter attention seeker, nor an attempt to manipulate other people to his way of thinking. And yet Paul does deliberately set himself up as an example of someone whose life has been transformed by the gospel. You see, the Corinthians' Christian lives haven't caught up with their Christian faith. And Paul knows that they need an example, a role model to follow. What does the Christian life actually look like in practice? Especially when it comes to the issues of our rights and our rewards. Because these followers of Jesus in Corinth had got those things back to front and upside down. If you were here last week, you, you remember that there was a particular hot-button issue in the church in Corinth. It was all to do with food sacrificed to idols. Could the Corinthians go for a, a slap-up business lunch at the temple dining hall? Was it okay to go to a neighbor's house for dinner if the food on offer was somehow connected to one of those idol sacrifices? Well, at least some in Corinth had decided that they knew what to do. They knew that idols were just a figment of people's imagination. And so they thought to themselves, what's the big deal? Don't I have the right to eat anything? Why let anyone else get in the way? Why give up on the rewards of business advancement at those big business dinners? Or improving my social status by attending that special banquet? And Paul realizes that he needs to stop them in their tracks and change the way of thinking. So just look back chapter 8, verse 9, or it's on the screen. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. You see, these know-it-all Christians need to realize that some in their church are not so sure. And if the know-it-alls stand on their rights, then others could end up falling over in their faith, or even falling away from their faith altogether. And so at the beginning of chapter 8 and running all the way through to the end of chapter 10, Paul takes one move after another to checkmate their pride and to change their attitude. And this chapter is just another one of those strategic moves in this high-stakes encounter. But it's not just for them, is it? We all know the power of an inspiring example. There's a whole industry of, of people who call themselves influencers nowadays. And Paul gives the example of his own life because he wants to influence 
the Corinthians. He wants their whole lives and ours to be shaped by the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And so as he talks in this chapter about his rights and his rewards, especially about whether or not he's paid for what he does, we don't need to think he's somehow gone off piste. Paul's life is is an example of a life that has been transformed by the good news of Jesus. And he describes his, his, his life here with an argument that's in two halves. And the first half is a lot longer than the second. And it leads to a lesson about money that we might feel is slightly disconnected from this issue of idle food. But if we keep the big picture in mind, we'll discover that there's a wonderful gospel logic in this chapter that's got great power to transform our lives too. So let's begin with the first lesson. Gospel workers have the right to be paid for their gospel work, verses 1 to 14. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have, you, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? So Paul opens up with four rapid-fire questions, and each one clearly expects the answer, yes. First, as a believer in Jesus, he has found true freedom. He's discovered that life is not about getting so much of, for himself out of life, but it's about serving his Savior. It's in whose service he finds perfect freedom. And he'll come back to that theme of freedom in verse 19. And the next three questions just continue to confirm what everyone else already knows. Paul is Christ's apostle. The word simply means messenger. Jesus' apostles have been sent by him with his message to the world. And no one can argue with the facts. There is a church in Corinth because Paul did the work of an apostle in Corinth. Verse 2. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. It's a little like this uh, wax seal that I saw at the British Museum last week at the Thomas Beckett exhibition. Is a seal that proves that Thomas Beckett has the authority of the, to, from the king to be the archbishop and the chancellor. And the Corinthian church are a living seal of Paul's apostleship. Their existence proves that he has Christ's authority to be his apostle. But then verse 3, why does Paul say he's defending himself? Well, most likely I think what he's doing is he's painting a picture of himself in the dock. No one is actually putting him in the dock, but he's voluntarily putting himself into an imaginary one to help the church understand his arguments. Because from verse 4 through to verse 14, Paul presents five pieces of evidence, five exhibits, to establish his right to be paid for gospel work. You see, if the Corinthians think they've got a right to eat in the temple of Aphrodite, Paul is prepared to up the ante. Because if you think you've got that right, well, listen to my rights. I'm Christ's apostle, but unlike you, I'm going to give my rights up. Well, let's work our way through the evidence, and we'll pause halfway through to apply the lesson to ourselves. Gospel workers have the right to be paid for their gospel work, exhibit A, comparison with the other apostles. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Each question is a no-brainer. 
The right to food and drink, verse 4, means the right, it's the same thing as the right to not work for a living, verse 6. The apostles are entitled to material support from those whom they served. And the right to take a believing wife surely includes the right for her to share in that material support. Paul has got just as many rights as all the other apostles. Exhibit B. Three illustrations from everyday life. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? And we've got a rather modest effort of a vegetable patch at the end of our garden. Uh, broccoli, courgettes, tomato, carrots, various other things. And if it's dry, I water them. If, every, if, I, if I remember, I give them some vegetable food. But I'm not sure I'd bother to do any of those things if I knew that everyone else in the family was going to eat them all and leave nothing for me. See, I'm looking forward to my share of the harvest. Just like the vineyard planter and the shepherd looked forward to their share of the grapes or the, the milk or the, the wool or whatever. And the same is actually true for the soldier, because it's not so much his own financial expense, which might be what we think of, it's actually his own food ration. No one willingly joins an army if their superiors are not going to feed them and water them. Ordinary people in everyday life have the right to be paid for their labors. And Paul says the same is true for gospel workers. If someone serves in God's army or works in his vineyard or shepherds his flock, he says, shouldn't they have the right to be reimbursed for their work? Exhibit C, a legal ruling from Scripture. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Well, if you're a lawyer, perhaps you're a little bit alarmed by Paul's apparent legal gymnastics. But he's not twisting a text about oxen to make the Bible say whatever he wants it to say. Paul knows that God cares about oxen. He is the creator of oxen at the end of the day. But Paul also knows that God's overriding priority is the gospel, not oxen. And God is absolutely committed to the growth of the gospel in the world. So if he's committed to that, why wouldn't he be committed to the reimbursement of those who contribute to that growth? Verse 10, yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the gospel. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Well, the language comes straight from Jesus' lips. I wonder if you noticed that. Fields, sowing, plowing, threshing, harvests. It's language that beautifully represents the gospel about Jesus. And what is more, Paul has used this language already in this letter. Do you remember chapter 3, verse 7? God makes things grow. Chapter 3, verse 9, you are God's fields. And he'll use the language again. He'll say, Stephanus' family was the first fruits in Achaia. Chapter 16, 15. If even an ox is entitled to physical food from a material harvest, then surely gospel workers are entitled to physical food. From their spiritual work. If others, verse 12, probably referring to Apollos, were making use of this right, surely Paul has the right too. And yet here's the big surprise, verse 12. But 
we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. It's a really sudden gear change. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. But, but, Paul was entitled to send the Corinthians an invoice. But he didn't. Why? Because the progress of the gospel was much more precious to him than his monthly paycheck. Remember in chapter 8, he spoke about stumbling blocks and, and causing other people to fall. And now he uses the same language about the gospel itself. He says he doesn't want to hinder it. Perhaps we could imagine a potential new Christian person in Corinth thinking that the gospel comes with strings attached. They're listening to Paul and, and at the end of his sermon he has his collection tin out and he thinks, well, if I believe this man's message, have I got to set up a direct debit into his account? Or maybe there's a working class Corinthian in the, in the audience and he, and he sees all his wealthy fellow Corinthians going up and giving Paul money. And he's thinking, oh, maybe this new religion is just for the elite. I can't afford it, so it can't be for me. Now, Paul doesn't want his right to receive money to be a hindrance to the gospel. And I wonder if we just pause here to think, how might Paul's example have something to say to us as a church about how we approach money? Dealing with money is always a little bit like walking a tightrope, isn't it? On the one hand, gospel workers have a right to be paid for their gospel work. But on the other hand, we want to make sure that money is not some sort of tripwire attached to the gospel. That's one reason why we've decided recently just to mention money publicly once a month in our services and publicly pray about it. We did it last week. Because we don't want visitors who come here to think we're all about money to think that you've got to pay your fee to be a member of the club. We don't want to hinder the gospel. But at the same time, we want to remember that the gospel work relies on gospel money from gospel people. So if I could just illustrate that. Linda and I are paid exclusively by you. Our salaries and our housing are the single biggest cost in the budget. We wouldn't be here if you didn't give. Likewise, Melissa's admin work is paid for by your giving. Well, think about Rich. We couldn't have him on the team if it wasn't for financial support from Commission, the network we're part of. Just imagine a moment. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, as we grow as a church, we could pay Melissa more so that she could do more? Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we could support Rich from more of our own giving instead of just relying on others? Wouldn't it be wonderful if, in a five years' time, say, or shorter than that, we had giving that we could use to pay a children's or a family's worker? We can all serve the gospel, but paid staff dedicated to using a large part of their time to gospel work can be a catalyst for growth. We want to say that we're very thankful, very thankful for your ongoing generosity. We know this last year has been a bit of an up and down year, and we want to thank you for that. And uh, we don't want to squeeze the lemon when it comes to money. We don't want to be asking for money all the time. But at the same time, we don't want to be embarrassed about talking about money. And yet we want to watch out for the pitfalls. Money might oil the wheels of the gospel, but money is not the gospel. Which is why in Corinth, Paul declined to be paid for his gospel work, to give up his rights. And then just as we're expecting Paul to drive towards his final destination to speak further about why he chose not to be paid, 
he changes back down to the gear he was in before, almost as if he's discovered two new pieces of evidence, two new exhibits in his briefcase. Exhibit D, an illustration from the temple. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? See, everyone knows that Jewish priests get a portion of the food sacrificed at the temple. It's, and if they can get support from that old covenant way of serving God, then Paul's argument is surely those who serve in the new covenant way, the new covenant gospel age, they can receive support too. And then finally, exhibit E, which ends up being the kind of climax of the whole section, a command from Christ. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. See, Jesus himself said that gospel workers should be paid for their gospel work. Do you remember he did that when he sent out the 12, Matthew 10, and when he sent out the 72, Luke 10. See, no one can argue with the lesson. But here's the question we need to ask. What is the point of this lesson? After all, there is no evidence that Paul and the Corinthians are disagreeing or falling out about money. So why does Paul spend 14 verses giving five pieces of evidence for something that's not under debate? Well, we already caught a glimpse of that answer in verse 12, but the full answer comes in the last paragraph in our second lesson. But gospel people are motivated to serve by the reward of the gospel itself. Gospel people are motivated to serve by the reward of the gospel itself. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you would do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Always, almost always, we think of boasting as a bad thing. But biblical boasting, when a Christian boasts about their righteous status in God's sight, is always a good thing. Do you remember how Paul wrote at the start of his letter, chapter 131, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul isn't boasting about being some sort of spiritual superhero, a kind of lone ranger, self-sufficient, macho minister who can manage for himself without anybody else's money. He's not saying that he's better than those other Christian ministers who receive material support. What he's doing is he's celebrating the fact that the gospel has given him a totally new outlook and purpose for life. He'd rather not live if those things were taken from him. And then he backs up that extraordinary claim in the next few verses. For example, verse 16, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul is a little like the prophet Jeremiah who once said, up on the screen here, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. He was compelled to preach the gospel. Well, it's like the reformer Martin Luther who when told to recant famously said, here I stand, I can do no other God help me, compelled to preach the gospel. The gospel was an irresistible power in his soul 
he couldn't help but speak of Jesus. It was his overriding purpose in life. Failure to preach Christ to Paul was an unbearable thought. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But unlike Jeremiah, who complained bitterly about that burden of preaching the gospel to people who didn't want to hear it, Paul saw through the trials and tribulations of his calling and saw that that preaching was actually his reward. This is amazing. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. See, Paul's reward is the gospel. He might be free, verse 1, but his chosen wages are to preach the gospel for free, to offer the news of free forgiveness brought by the shed blood of Jesus to all people without cost. He's a slave, and yet he rejoices in that. It's just as Jesus said in that first reading. When all is said or done, the man or woman who serves Jesus as their master has really only one thing to say. We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Perhaps we could think about it like this. Paul called the Corinthians God's field. He had a right to share in the crops that they produced. But where does his ultimate reward come from? Well, it doesn't come from the field comes from the owner of the field, the master who told him to sow the seed of the gospel in in the first place. And so his duty is his reward. Paul was an apostle, one of just a handful of eyewitnesses, eyewitness messengers of Jesus. But he was also a servant, a slave of Jesus, just like you and me if we're followers of Jesus today. We may have a right to be paid, for example, if we're full-time or part-time members of, of the church team, we, if, if you ever spend any money on church stuff, you have a right to claim expenses. But let's never think our rights are the same as our rewards. We can be motivated by, the, by many things in church life. The money in the paycheck, if you're Linda or me, or the status that comes from involvement in a particular ministry or the reputation of indispensability that we've built up over years and years and years just by doing them, serving, or the power and influence over other areas or other people that comes from being an expert in our own special area. Similar things can motivate us outside of church, especially when it comes to laying down our rights. As a parent, do we sometimes have the right to some peace and quiet from our kids? Is our everyday life sometimes motivated for the desperate search for that right or another right? If so, do we need to be challenged to give up that right to serve them because the gospel motivates us more than the right to some peace and quiet? Or as an employee, do we have a right to be served by those junior to us? Is our work life ever shaped by strategic moves to make sure that they fulfill their duties to us? Might the gospel need to become more of a motivation for us Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, as we choose to do things that by the letter of the contract, by the letter of the job description, they ought to do for us? 
but we choose to do it the other way around. Well, as citizens, do we have a right to be served by the state? Is our outlook on community or national life ever governed by the assumption that people out there, other people, are obliged to do things for me? Do we need to pray for more of a gospel motivation that shapes our interactions with people around us in the community or above us in the nation? That we might see ourselves as servants called to serve and not as masters being waited upon by our lessers. See, after all, this is the shape of life Paul commends to these proud, puffed-up Corinthian Christians. He puts himself as high as he can. I am Christ's apostle, and I deserve to be paid. And then he brings himself as low as possible. Christ's willing slave who preaches the gospel for free. And isn't that just what the example that they needed? Instead of standing on their rights and saying, I'm eating idle food. Paul says, no, don't do that. Take up your cross. Deny yourself for the sake of others instead. Because isn't that what Jesus did? Paul wrote at the beginning of the letter, we preach Christ crucified. Not once did Jesus stand on his rights to be served because he knew he'd come to serve others by dying for them. Not once did he consider any earthly reward, money, status, reputation, power, peace and quiet, as the motivation for his ministry. He laid down his life instead. So may we be a church full of gospel people who get our rights and our rewards the right way round. In our life together on Sundays and during the week, but also in our lives 24-7 outside. Yes, it is true. Gospel people have a right to be paid for their gospel work. We needn't be embarrassed about money. We can aspire to grow financially because we trust that, that that will help us grow spiritually too. But that's not the main lesson of this chapter. We need to remember that lesson in the light of the much bigger picture. Gospel people are motivated to serve by the reward of the gospel itself. What greater reimbursement could we ask for than that? A gospel that sets us free from slavery to sin and death and judgment that is perfect, that, that sets us free from that for perfect freedom of serving our Savior. Isn't the gospel reward enough? Should have a moment of quiet, then Marion's going to lead us in prayer.